been a challenging year for many, and how businesses and individuals react under pressure and manage risk can truly define their future. The Biden administration has made it clear that deterring corruption and fraud through aggressive enforcement is a top priority, and the Department of Justice is ready to take action. One of the U.S. government's most powerful tools to combat fraud and abuse involving government funds is the False Claims Act. In this podcast series, we'll discuss some of the biggest issues that have surfaced and how courts are interpreting key issues under the False Claims Act. Additionally, we'll take a look at how the new administration is reshaping False Claims Act enforcement today and in the years to come. The pandemic has really transformed the healthcare sector. The rise in telemedicine has rapidly changed patient care as providers look to deliver services in a safe and effective way. And it's not going away. The use of telemedicine continues to grow. A recent uh, McKinsey report found that in April of 2020, the use of telehealth for office visits and outpatient care was 78 times higher than it had been in February of 2020. That was during the height of the pandemic. And we have seen the use of telemedicine stabilize since then. But it's still at levels that are 38 times higher than they had been before the pandemic began. While it's an impressive step change in the way that healthcare services are provided, the use of telemedicine has certainly caught the attention of the Department of Justice, as well as the False Claims Act Relators Bar. We're seeing greater enforcement actions and an increase in False Claims Act cases in in this area. Let's dig into this a little bit and find out what it means for companies in this space. I'm Gajan Govena. I'm an investigations and white collar defense partner in our Washington DC office, uh, with a focus on healthcare and life sciences industry in my practice. And I'll be moderating today's discussion alongside my colleagues, Michelle Sartori and Allison Kaplis. Michelle is also a partner in our Washington office with experience working on pharmaceutical, medical device, and healthcare fraud investigations, as well as False Claims Act litigation. Allison regularly counsels healthcare clients in connection with fraud and false statement investigations, as well as representing clients in complex civil litigation involving allegations of healthcare fraud. So I'd like to open up the discussion by talking about the step change in the healthcare sector. The increase in the use of telemedicine was born out of necessity, but Michelle, it's, it's continued because consumers are in many cases willing to use telehealth as an alternative, and it makes financial sense for providers. What do you think is driving that? It's so interesting, Gaja. So we've been talking with clients for years about telehealth, and it was always going to be the next big thing. For years, in these sorts of forums and discussions, telemedicine was going to be the next big thing. And well, it only took a horrific global pandemic, but here we are. And I can say as a participant in the healthcare industry, as a consumer, as a patient, I had never gone to see a doctor virtually before the pandemic. But now it is by far my preferred method of seeing a doctor or taking my kid to see a doctor. You don't have to set aside all that time to get to the office, to then you know sit around in the waiting room, hoping that their celebrity gossip magazines are up to date, or at least more up to date than the ones we're used to in the DOJ waiting rooms and U.S. Attorney's Office waiting rooms. You're saving so much time, money, and energy using telehealth. And on the provider side, Telemedicine can reduce office overhead costs. It can give providers increased job flexibility, allow them to work from home. And there's typically increased efficiency. Providers can see more patients virtually in the same amount of time than they can in an office setting, which of course leads to increased revenue, increased profits. It also appears telemedicine is actually improving patients' access to doctors, particularly patients in rural communities, in underserved urban areas, 
Patients are also attending more follow-up visits that they used to maybe skip in person. I am definitely guilty of that. So all in all, the hope is here that this is all leading to improved health outcomes. At this point, anybody listening is probably getting really concerned. Anytime lawyers are this positive about something, there's got to be a huge downside coming, right? So, you know, of, of course, of course, telemedicine is, doesn't work for everything right? It doesn't work for every kind of visit. You know, sometimes a doctor needs to physically examine a patient and healthcare providers need to adhere to the same high standards of care in a virtual setting as they do in person. And so do all the different components of the industry that come into play in healthcare. The government has been wary of telemedicine for years, and we know that they're watching closely as the continued increase in telemedicine and the continued use. So we know at some level the government's watching. What could possibly go wrong, right? That's right. And in fact, DOJ has been particularly wary of telemedicine uh, from the start, certainly even before COVID-19 started. Frankly, that's been driven, I think, in part by the fact that the agency seems very concerned that telemedicine opens up a lot of opportunities for potential fraud and abuse. Allison, is that consistent with your understanding? Absolutely. Not surprisingly, anytime there's a new technology, there's a concern about law and regulation sort of catching up with it. And so not surprisingly, the government foresaw that with this new technology, there could be a lot of concern for possibilities for fraud and abuse. And so much so that it now has its own acronym, Telefraud. This concern is coming from the federal government and from states and likely insurance companies about how to confirm that these telehealth services that the government and others are paying billions of dollars for are necessary. They have been seeing a lot of fraud schemes where visits might not take place or where, you know, they're billing for a visit and it's a two minute, oh, hey, here you go. Here's an expensive piece of, you know, equipment or here's an expensive genetic test when it's not really warranted. And so obviously the government as the, you know, major funder or reimburser of health claims wants to make sure that what they're paying for is actually needed and actually provided. Not surprisingly, they are hesitant. They have these concerns. And because of that, you know, pre-COVID, Medicare's coverage of telemedicine was really limited. But as a result of the pandemic, the government needed to provide more flexibility in order to have these telemedicine services be available to people. COVID essentially caused Medicare to adopt telehealth much more rapidly than it otherwise would have. I know that you threw out some stats that were really interesting. And the one that I found staggering was a Department of Health and Human Services report published in July 2020 said that less than 1% of Medicare visits were provided through telehealth before COVID. And in April 2020, almost half of them were. That's only increasing. According to the AMA, almost 85% of psychiatrists connected with patients via video or home during the height of the pandemic. So I think like many things that we've all gotten used to over the past two years, given the increased popularity of telehealth services, it's really almost impossible to imagine going back to the traditional model, even when the world, quote unquote, returns to normal. You know, when you think about telehealth or telefraud, I guess is now DOJ is calling it, I think one would typically think, okay, well, there might be a provider out there who maybe billed for uh, visits that didn't take place. And again, because of the challenges of policing it, that may have you know, led to some fraud at some level. But it looks like some of these investigations and cases can involve some pretty large sums of money. And in particular, there was one in 2019 uh, that got a lot of uh, attention involving a case brought by a former employee of a company called Regency. Michelle, why don't you tell us a little bit about that? So this was pre-pandemic, before this explosion of telehealth. 
DOJ had a big sort of cross-jurisdictional investigation going called Operation Brace Yourself. And I don't know about you, Gaja, but when I was a federal prosecutor, I always wanted to get to name one of these big sting operations, and I never did. But anyway, DOJ busted essentially a huge scheme between DME, durable medical equipment, companies that typically sell items like braces and crutches and the like, and doctors and telemedicine companies whereby the DME companies purportedly paid kickbacks to doctors working at these telemedicine companies to induce them to write prescriptions for DME, like braces, for Medicare patients based on either no patient interaction or a very brief telephone conversation with a patient that the doctor hadn't even seen and the patient purportedly didn't need the brace. And of course, they build Medicare then for these pieces of durable medical equipment, these braces. Well, DOJ had a huge investigation, ended up filing criminal charges against, I think it was over two dozen defendants, including these DME and telemedicine companies, a few doctors, and a number of executives of these DME companies and these telemedicine companies, a lot of individuals, which is pretty noteworthy in this space. In addition to these criminal actions, there was also a False Claims Act case that had been filed in early 2019 by a whistleblower or Ketam relator who was a former employee of a DME company called Regency. And the whistleblower alleged that Regency and its chief executive were submitting false claims to Medicare for these braces, basically following that fact pattern of Operation Brace Yourself that involved these kind of sham telemedicine appointments and these prescriptions that weren't necessary. And the case resulted in a settlement of more than $20 million against not just the DME company, but also its chief executive. Uh, so this was a really big matter overall. And it was notable because it sort of, number one, it played into these DOJ sort of fears that they've had for years about telemedicine, that it's all a sham, that patients aren't getting seen, or it's just a one-minute phone call and it's ordering unnecessary equipment. All the concerns Allison laid out kind of came to fruition in this particular investigation. It was also notable, number two, for just the number of individual defendants. You have somebody on the hook for a $20 million settlement in a False Claims Act case, that doesn't happen all the time with individuals. And so a very aggressive matter. And that's just one example. And it's before telehealth really took off, which is pretty wild. And Alison, the frequency with which these uh, takedowns involving telefraud uh, or telemedicine are taking place seems to be increasing. In fact, there have been some large ones more recently, right? As Michelle noted, Operation Brace Yourself was really notable in terms of its breadth and how many individuals, but it seems like people weren't um, sufficiently persuaded not to engage in such telehealth. And so after that came another fun name, Operation Rubber Stamp. And then as recently as September 2021, building off the momentum of those prior investigations, DOJ announced criminal charges, again, over 40 individuals just for telehealth. And this was for people throughout the country, so not limited to a specific geography. And they're alleging that the schemes resulted in over a billion dollars in false claims. And, you know, it's these same allegations. The telemedicine executives are paying kickbacks, basically bribes, right, to doctors, nurse practitioners to order unnecessary tests, unnecessary equipment, pain medication, 
all without ever interacting with a patient at all, or like Michelle said, perhaps having a really brief screening telephone call and that's it. In some instances, the equipment and the tests weren't provided at all. So just pure, just billing for things that never, ever happened or providing things that were essentially worthless to the patients because they didn't really need them. And so, you know, I think what's really important to think about is that not only do these schemes result in enormous financial losses to the government, to insurance companies, you know, to patients out of pocket, but they have really dangerous repercussions for the health of patients. I mean, you can imagine if you're a patient and you talk to a doctor who you think is providing you care and they're giving you tests or they're sending you equipment, right, but they're not really evaluating you false diagnoses, equipment you don't need, that can really mislead patients. And it can make them not seek health care from, you know, and get appropriate treatment. So it really can have dangerous health consequences in addition to costing the government billions of dollars. What this recent prosecution shows is that DOJ is looking beyond just the telefraud, just beyond the scheme between the DME company and the telehealth executives in terms of kickbacks. And they're also looking at the consultations themselves, In this instance, we said 40 people had criminal charges against them. Nine of them were healthcare providers that were alleged to have billed for, you know, consultations that didn't happen or didn't happen as they were represented. Now DOJ is focusing not just on telefraud prosecutions, but on the actual consultation done by the doctor or the nurse practitioner and the orders themselves that are coming out of them. These large-scale investigations, they have catchy names, they generate splashy headlines, and I think this is a real signal to the telehealth community that DOJ is laser-focused on this potential fraud and abuse that can come from telehealth, which we now kind of think is here to stay. Well, I think, Elsie, you raise an important point. You know, not only does DOJ view these telehealth cases from the perspective of, you know, possible financial harm to the government, but it's that patient harm element as well that's potentially in play. So with that being said, I, I would like to turn to the use of electronic health records or EHR, I'll call it from here on out. So EHR are computerized versions of a patient's medical history that are maintained by their healthcare providers. And as you can imagine, those records are obviously quite sensitive. And while there are many benefits for both companies and patients to having electronic health records, and in fact, the government has incentivized uh, over the years the use of electronic health records, there is a, a significant possibility of fraud uh, in, with respect to electronic health records. So Michelle, maybe you could talk to us a little bit about some of the ways that companies might get into trouble with respect to EHR. When you mentioned the possibility of fraud, there really is a lot of potential issues there. There could be HIPAA issues. There could be cybersecurity issues that we're not even going to touch upon. But in terms of thinking about the core False Claims Act risks, the big EHR cases that we've seen to date seem to me to be really a matter of Same old stuff DOJ has been interested in for years, but in a new arena, in a new exciting arena that makes them want to pursue it. So for example, the biggest EHR case to date was the Practice Fusion case. Practice Fusion was a company that provided a free EHR system to providers, and the company relied on funding from external sources to fund the system. So, of course, that included funding from the pharmaceutical industry and, in particular, from Purdue Pharma. DOJ asserted that funding from Purdue was in exchange for utilizing the EHR system to influence prescribing through the use of what are called clinical decision support alerts that essentially pop up in the system recommending to providers that they prescribe 
in this case, produce opioid medication, apparently regardless of whether that was clinically appropriate. So it's a new system and it's pop-ups and it's all exciting. But when you look at the allegations, so in this case, there was a criminal case that was resolved through a deferred prosecution agreement, and there was a False Claims Act case that settled for more than $100 million. But when you look at the allegations, they look really familiar. For example, DOJ alleged that Practice Fusion prepared and presented ROI, return on investment analyses based upon increased prescribing of the opioids after introduction of the EHR system. Well, DOJ has been obsessed with ROI in kickback investigations for years. So for example, in the speaker program cases, one of the first things DOJ asks is whether ROI was conducted after a speaker event to see if prescriptions increased. DOJ has been asking that question for years. Another example, DOJ alleged that Purdue funded the EHR out of its brand and marketing budgets, not its medical or clinical budgets, and that marketing personnel were involved in these clinical decision support alerts. Again, DOJ for years has been skeptical of any medical or clinical programming supported by the pharmaceutical or medical device industry that involved their sales or marketing personnel as opposed to clinical and medical, and they've looked for sort of a firewall. And so, a lot of those issues that we've seen in these kickback investigations for years, we see in these newer EHR cases, which seems so exciting. But when you look at the allegations, it's a little bit of deja vu. My take on some of these cases is, even though the EHR represents a new frontier, DOJ has this really well-worn tool belt that they use and they use and they use. And I think that we can expect that a lot of what DOJ is looking at and looking for in investigating potential EHR fraud isn't necessarily all that novel and may look pretty familiar to industry. And so kind of getting back to basics here, even in this new frontier, is probably a good idea. And I would just add to that, you know, I think, Michelle, your case that you were talking about is sort of a sexy allegation, even if sort of old theories. And I think similarly, but on the less sexy front, Anytime the government is giving money to companies or hospitals, they want to make sure that it's being used appropriately. Not surprisingly, when they're providing incentives to hospitals to start using electronic health records, they want to make sure that the hospitals are actually making meaningful use, which is the magic words. And so they are really doing a lot of auditing and investigating to make sure that these smaller hospitals that are getting federal funds are doing what they're claiming to do. So not nearly as exciting, but I think important nonetheless for all of these practitioners, not just hospitals, but doctor's offices to make sure, you know, if you are taking advantage of incentives for meaningful use that you're actually using it properly and documenting it properly, which is always an important component. Let's take a look to the future. Uh, let's break out our crystal balls. And in looking at telehealth in particular, uh, Allison, where do you think um, well, the enforcement is going to be going with, with telehealth? And what does that mean for healthcare providers? Luckily, I don't really need a crystal ball here because the government has been very forthright in telling us that they are continuing to look into um, this arena. So the acting Assistant Attorney General for the Civil Division at Department of Justice, Brian Boynton, he recently said that he expects a continued focus on telehealth schemes particularly given the expansion of telehealth during the pandemic. And he did identify fraud relating to EHR 
as another area that's likely to be a focal point of future enforcement efforts. And the Department of Health and Human Services Office of Inspector General has also made clear that they too are conducting significant oversight work assessing telehealth services during the public health emergency. And they've been um, performing audits and they're going to continue to perform audits and evaluations to be completed this year in 2022, bringing further attention to the area. So I think, yes, this is still a, a an area that's very ripe for continued investigation. So let me throw, throw this out to both of you then. What should telemedicine providers do to keep DOJ from knocking at their doors? Well, it's all about compliance. Now more than ever, DOJ expects companies to not only have compliance programs, but have active, not reactive, but really proactive compliance programs. In this space, that means making sure companies have controls, have rules, have policies in place to meet CMS requirements for billing telehealth, to meet HHS requirements for the rigor of EHR systems, and so on and so on. And not only having these rules in place, SOPs and policies, but monitoring them, conducting audits or assessments to make sure that employees and systems are adhering to the rules. There's been a lot of buzz about data. DOJ came out last year and said they expect companies' compliance programs are utilizing data to monitor compliance and to test the company's policies and controls. We know that the government is looking at telehealth. Allison's crystal ball has told us that. We know they're looking at EHR systems. So what are you doing proactively to make sure the government isn't going to find what they're looking for with you? That's the question that industry needs to be asking itself. And compliance is a huge part of that. Allison, what what else should companies do? Sure. So I think part and parcel to the compliance is just the need to document, document, document. It's like the adage, you know, if a tree is falling in a forest, if you didn't document it, did it really happen? And so this applies to the documenting of the existence of the visit, the thoroughness of the visit um, between a patient and a healthcare provider documenting the need for treatments prescribed, the billing practices, the specific versions of the EHR software that's being used, documenting the meaningful use made of the EHR software, and keeping your documents for the requisite number of years. Almost as important as documenting is making sure that your documents are organized in a manner where you can find them easily. Because the goal here is to really be able to tell your story with documents So it's not just your word against a whistleblower or your word against the government when they come to investigate. Yeah. And on the data point, I mean, Michelle, I totally agree with you uh, that uh, companies should be looking at their own data and using data internally to track uh, and see what's going on with respect to their billings because the government's doing that. The government's gotten very sophisticated with respect to its data analytics capabilities. And they're using algorithms and various other means to sort of to look into what providers are doing. So they're certainly looking at their data and companies should be looking at their own data as well to sort of stay ahead of the government. And to your point, Allison, we've seen obviously DOJ become much more aggressive with, with their use of civil investigative demands in recent years. So the extent to which there is data showing outliers, DOJ has not been shy about issuing CIDs to try and get those documents to see what was going on with respect to them. Well, listen, uh, thank you, Michelle and Allison. This has been a great discussion. I uh, really appreciate it. And uh, thanks. Thank you. Thank you, Gaja. Thank you for listening. If you're interested in any of the issues raised during this podcast, we would love to hear from you. 
please feel free to reach out to any of our podcast participants to talk through any of the questions or comments you may have. For additional analysis on this topic and others around the FCA, please download our latest publication, False Claims Act Guide 2021 in the Road Ahead from HoganLevels.com.